I'm Julia LaRoche, and I spoke with Mark Bertolini, CEO of Aetna, about the future of the healthcare system. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Great being here. Well, Mark, let's first start with your own personal experience in mm. healthcare. You're, you had an accident many years ago, and your son was a cancer survivor. Can you mm. talk about how those experiences have shaped your views of the healthcare system? Yeah, I think I think the the biggest message out of all of those for me was that the healthcare system fixes what's broken. So for me, it was a broken neck and a, a macerated brachial plexus, a bad nerve damage. For my son, it was his cancer. But then when they were done with that work, thinking of me as a whole human being engaging in my life and being back in society in a way that was productive and useful for me was not on their agenda. So once you get sent from the healthcare system to go back to your life, quote unquote, the journey becomes very murky and difficult to uh, navigate. If you could elaborate more on how that has shaped your views and how you sure. run your company. So in 1948, the World Health Organization defined health as not merely the absence of disease or acute illness, but the physical, social, and psychological well-being of the individual. So as I tried to put my life back together, as I tried to advocate for my son when he had his cancer, um, it became apparent to me that we had big holes in the healthcare system that we needed to fill in some way and that we needed to treat people as whole people. We needed to make sure that they were rehabilitated back to a life they enjoyed. And so we started building programs beyond just paying for acute care and started to look at chronic illness and how people were living their lives, where they lived their lives, um, were they productive members of society. We redefined health as a healthy individual is productive, a productive individual is socially, spiritually, economically, and physically viable, and viable people are happy. And so we should be making people happy um, because they're productive members of society. So what are some of the key ways that Aetna is uh, addressing this issue? I know you all have some initiatives going mm -hmm. into different communities. If you could talk about that. Sure. Um, we, so if you look at longevity, the length of one's life, 10% um, of it is related to clinical care, the care you get in the healthcare system. 30% is related to genetic code, the stuff you are built of. And then 60% is related to where you live. They're called social determinants and lifestyle factors. So if you think about it, one's longevity is very uh, much defined by your zip code, not your genetic code. So we have zip codes in this town in New York, we have zip codes in Detroit, we have zip codes in Chicago. Um, where individuals in one county have 15, or one zip code, have 15 to 20 years less life expectancy than people in the zip code next door. And so what we said is we gotta get into the community. We gotta invest in the community to understand these social determinants. Uh, much like J.D. Vance describes in Hillbilly Elegy, um, this idea of who am I living with and what is my community about. So we started to build programs individually into um, 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 these communities. For example, um, in 2015 and 2016, we started 240 urban farms across America. Now we've done 5,538 garden beds across America to eliminate food deserts. Um, we do yoga and mindfulness in communities. We do mindfulness in violent inner city schools with the Goldie Hawn Foundation to help kids breathe up, if you will, to, in order to overcome their fear and to concentrate on their work. 
And as we did more and more of that, we said, you know what, there needs to be a more holistic approach. So we created the Healthiest Cities and Counties Challenge, where we invited cities to come and apply for 15 plan 50 planning grants. Um, we now had 300 cities apply, cities and counties. We granted those 50 planning grants, and over the next two years, we'll monitor their success with US News and World Report to identify who's done the best job and then share that across the country. So this year alone, our foundation will invest $2 million in communities around America doing these kinds of programs to get, again, closer to the community, understand how people live, know what we can do to make their lives a little different. Have you gotten any recent or early results from these programs? Not yet, it's too early. Um, the programs have just been barely operational a year, so we'll get it at year end. Um, we'll get an idea where folks are and their, and their planning, but I'll, I'll give you an example of a few. In um, Camden, New Jersey, um, their storm and sewage systems are connected, so when it rains, sewage floods the streets. So it's an infrastructure problem, so we'll work with them on that. In Baltimore, it's about reclaiming neighborhood corners. And so they're gonna take neighbors for walks and they're gonna reclaim their corners. Um, in other places, it's farming. Um, we just need food deserts. In Harlem, for example, there's a great place um, called Harlem Ground, which sits across from schools, supplying food to the community and to the schools so they can have better lunch programs inside the schools with fresh food. What sort of role does technology play in healthcare in this day and age? Well, all over the place, right? We have technology that we use to fix things. Um, so, you know, lasers and gamma knives and CAT scans and MRIs. We don't have a whole lot of monitoring going on, but the big next emergence will be in-home monitoring, in-person monitoring, right? We'll have all these devices we'll wear all the time. Um, and the problem will be then how do we handle all the data that comes from these devices to begin to analyze and come to conclusions about what we can do to help. Um, now, not everybody wants to be helped the same way. So we have to find what it is about their health that presents barriers to the quality of life they want to live. And if we can make that connection between my quality of life and my health, then we have an opportunity to engage them on the things that matter. And so an example I'll use for that is an individual with diabetes can have neuropathy of their feet and have difficulty walking. Now if you say to that individual, let's get your diabetes under control, we'll get your neuropathy under control, and you can run a 5K, and they've never run an inch in their life, they're really not interested. But if we say to them, you know what, you'll be able to walk around the corner to see your grandchildren, or take a walk to the park and sit and read a book, now you've got their attention. And so we wanna create projects with people about what it is about their health that gets in the way of them living their life, and if we can have them engaged in that project, they will be engaged, and we'll be able to help them over a longer period of time. So it sounds like a more personalized approach. What are the logistics to this? Do you need to partner with other companies to do this? Well, I, I like to say logistics is a great word. So I think this is a logistics challenge. Um, if you look at the greatest logistics providers um, over time, you know, we had UPS and FedEx, right, early on. Now we have Amazon and we have Uber and we have Lyft and we have Airbnb and we have all these logistics providers. They don't own the means of production. They don't build the product. Um, they don't own the customer other than to connect the customer to the product. And so if you think about that tool in healthcare, if we can get inside the home with monitoring, instead of knocking on the door and saying, hey, we're here from that and we're here to help, and we can get information from them that allows us to understand demand, what do they need in the way of help, and source it in the local community, 
we can create economic viability in the community by having people in the community supporting people in the community in their homes. So Mark, why do you think healthcare costs are so high today? Because we wait until something's broken, right? We have, I, I would say it's two big things. First, it's a, it's a warranty system. So it's like going to an auto dealership and saying I want a warranty, not a car. And so I'm more interested in the warranty on my car than I'm interested in the car. Well, that would be crazy purchase, right? But yet, what we say to people when they buy health insurance, here's your warranty card. When you get broken, we'll fix you. Doesn't say anything about their quality of life, doesn't say anything about the quality of their health. All it says is when we're broken, we'll fix you. So what we have is a break-fix operation called the healthcare delivery system that fixes broken people. And by then, it's too late. So what we need is an idea of what people want in their quality of life. So if you buy a car properly, you say, here's the kind of car I want. Here's what color it is. Here's how many seats I want. I want it to be fast, slow. I want it to be, cons you know, conserve energy. I want it to have a big engine. Whatever it is you want, you decide that, and then you build it. And they make it for you, and it's to spec. So why don't we say to people, what is it about your health that gets in your way? How can we help you? build a better quality of life, and let us worry about how we finance it later on once we design the product you want. So that's the switch we need to make. The second part is that Americans have lost hope over their health. And so we have 80% of the opioids that are produced in the world being consumed by American citizens. We have large swaths and percentages of people in the Midwest who have families who are addicted to opioids, or somebody in their family addicted to opioids. The vast majority of Americans, more than 75%, know somebody addicted to opioids. And so people have given up. And so this idea of loss of hope and a system more focused on fixing broken things creates this very high cost structure for us as a country that's standing in the way of social determinants. We're not investing in social programs. We're waiting for people to be broken and fix them. Speaking of the opioid crisis, what sort of role can companies like Aetna play? I know this is something you all are doing, but can you elaborate on the role that you're playing in this area? Sure. So um, two things. We can see who's prescribing too many opioids. So we've identified 1,000 doctors in our network that we've sent a note to suggesting that maybe they're a little over the top. We, that includes dentists, by the way, and chiropractors. And so we're going through this whole process of identifying the individuals who are overprescribing and asking them, or in our view, overprescribing them and asking them questions. The second is, is we've got to get people on other forms of pain management. So we have a 50-50-50 goal. 50% of the people that we treat for pain, we want to treat through multimodal, not opioids. So different kinds of drugs and therapies. 50% of the people that are addicted to opioids, we want to get into treatment supported by medicine. We want to reduce the prescribing of drugs, the number of units that get prescribed by 50%. So those are our goals as we address this, this issue to try and get at that point of view. And by the way, the opioid market and its pricing is tied to the heroin market and its pricing. And so this connection has got to be broken as well as we address it, because when people lose access to opioids, the next big step for them is heroin. And I know this is early on, but in those letters that you sent to doctors, have you heard back from them? Have they responded? 
um, we've heard from some, they've called, you know, some we want to know why they're prescribing the way they are. Maybe they have practices that are focused on pain. You know, maybe they have practices where they do a lot of, you know, significant orthopedic surgery or whatever. So we just want to know. So we're not accusing them of overprescribing. We're saying we see a lot of opioids coming out of your practice. Can you tell us why? And so those conversations are ongoing. Right. Well, another thing, your values that you've learned from your own experience in healthcare have been permeating your company at mm -hmm. Aetna from mindfulness to rewarding people for sleeping. Can yeah. you talk to us about what are the results that you're seeing from some of these initiatives that you've implemented? So in 2007, um, I approached the team about doing yoga and mindfulness because I do yoga and mindfulness and they said, well, because you do it, we got to do it now. And so they sent me the chief medical, chief medical officer came to see me to tell me this is craziness that you're asking us to do this. Um, and I said, well, what would make it work for you? And he said, well, if you could, if we could do a, a study, let's do a, you know, a random randomized trial. So we did and we asked employees to join and we measured their heart rate variability um, as an indication of stress because stress is a big driver of a lot of illness. Um, and when we um, looked at that, we saw that the people in the highest quintile of stress had $2,500 more a year of healthcare costs for multiple years in a row. And so we put them through mindfulness and yoga, we measured their heart rate variability afterwards, looked at their healthcare costs a year later, and we saw a $3,000 reduction in healthcare costs, 69 minutes more of productivity, um, a re vast reduction in their stress levels, but the most important part were the journals we got. We had everybody journal their journey, and there was about, I think there was almost 700 employees who went through it. And in that journal, we found out about quality of life as a stressor. You know, having to pay bills, or not having enough to pay bills, or having to be on food stamps, or having kids on Medicaid. And so that began the next step of our journey, which said, okay, who are these people? Um, why are they having this trouble at home? We're a big company. We do well, why aren't some of these employees doing well? And when we did that, we found that we had a vast majority of these families were female head of household. Um, a lot of them were single female head of household. Um, um, we had a lot of kids on Medicaid, a lot of families on food stamps. Um, and what we did is we said, what is their wage like? And so it was about $12, $12.50 an hour. Um, and we said, well, what can we do? How can we solve this problem for them? Um, and what we did was we raised minimum wage of $16 an hour. Um, if they were below 300% of the federal poverty level, we reduced their healthcare costs to virtually zero out of pocket. Um, and that started a whole thought process in the organization that created this idea of well, what more can we do for our employees to make them better people? Because these are the people taking care of our customers who need support. And that began the whole idea of paying for sleep, you know, $300 for 20 nights in a row at seven and a half hours. We increased our tuition assistance to $5,000 a year. We now repay student loans up to $10,000. Um, and now we have pet therapy. So we have dogs and cats and rabbits. I, I drew the line at mini ponies. Um, and, uh, and they come to the office and people line up down the hall to have time with these pets. It's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and it hasn't hurt your bottom line at all. Oh, no. We, so we spend probably $70 million-ish on doing this every year. Um, our engagement scores are up 1,200 per basis points. Um, um, our bottom line continues to improve. Customer retention 
improves. And when we started all of this, our stock was at $29, and it's now at $155. So for you know the business people in the audience, it's you know it, it actually works, and it hasn't hurt us at all. Do you think this is something the rest of corporate America could replicate? I think we have to. I, you know, I think the whole idea of organizations as being contained within four walls is a myth. Um, companies like Yahoo um, and Twitter and all these others disturb that. And so we have social ecosystems that are borderless. And these social ecosystems are not able to be contained by the governance models of simple corporations or even governments. And so as we've seen with the Arab Spring. And so this whole idea of treating, of, of dealing with a social ecosystem is about more moral authority than formal authority. It's about mission. It's about people, planet, then profits. And so if you have to build an organization like that, it requires trust. And you only get that if you give it. And so this mission-oriented, trust-based model of running a business within a social ecosystem requires different leadership than we've traditionally seen in the CEO suite. And I think that's the next big step for corporations, is to understand that and act on it. You can do good and do well. You know, another uh, new development for Aetna, you all announced that you're relocating your headquarters to New York City. Mm -hmm. Is this a talent issue? What's going on here? It's a quality of life issue. And so a lot of people have said, you know, well, you know, Bertolini's got a place in New York, so he wants the company in New York. Well, I can, I travel 200 days a year. So, you know, I'm actually in Hartford more than I'm here in New York. Um, so it's not about where I am. And, you know, plus I'm getting closer and closer and closer to retirement anyway. So, you know, the future of the organization is not about me. It's about the people behind me. Um, it's about talent in a very specific way. We can attract, because of what we do as a company and the way we behave, everybody wants to come work for us. And they love to work for us. And we have great technology people and we have great product people. We're building great marketing teams as we become more of a retail company. And the problem is, is keeping them. And they want to live in communities. You know, you're an example. My daughter's an example. She lives in you know, Brooklyn and Williamsburg. You know, everybody's all about this whole idea of I want to be able to walk where I want to go to eat. I want to be in a vibrant community where I can have a lot of access to culture and parks. And you know, Hartford's a beautiful place, but it doesn't have the vibrancy it needs for us to keep people once we get them. And that's the issue. It's quality of life. And those investments aren't about the taxes we pay. It's actually going to cost us more to be in New York than it does for us to be in Hartford. It's not about the taxes we pay. It's not about the business costs. It's about the quality of life of retaining talent within our community. And a lot of people don't get that, and they want to blame it on me, or they want to blame it on taxes. It's really about are we creating communities that are vibrant that young people want to be part of. It's part of this people, planet, and profits thing. All right. Well, what I do want to turn to Washington, D.C., mm. is Obamacare really failing like the president says it is? I, I think Obamacare is struggling, just like any social program that is left untouched for seven years. So if you look at every major social program we've enacted, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, they've all been bipartisan, and they have all been touched and tweaked every year. And Medicare and Medicaid in concert with the industry. Right, the, the private, with private industry. So here we have a bill that was passed in 2010. It hasn't been touched for seven years because it's been a political football. It was not bipartisan. 
and here we have it fraying at the edges because we haven't made the changes necessary to keep it viable. Any of those other programs wouldn't work if we left them alone for seven years. And so this idea of it financially fraying at the edges, its original rules and conditions aren't what the world's like today and those need to change. And unfortunately, we have this politics of repeal that sits out there that really legitimately in the Senate can't be done. It really can't be repealed. It can be defunded, but it can't be repealed. And so if we really want to get this right, we should fix it. It should be a bipartisan fix. And we should move on to the other agendas we have because we do need a program that supports the individuals that don't have insurance today. If you had to fix it or offer your advice on how to fix it, what, what would you like to see changed? I think the most important part is to create financial stability in the pool because we have sicker people. And it's always going to be a program that's going to have sicker people because those are the people that are motivated to buy insurance, unfortunately or fortunately. We need to find ways to entice younger people to buy it if it's not provided by their employer. And that needs to be a funding mechanism that is more cash-based and savings-based. Because young people don't consider the risks of their future life as to be significant enough for them to worry about now. And so if you do those two things in concert with continuing the Medicaid expansion, but expecting it to cost less if we have 70 million people in the program seven years from now, and make sure that we show results in improving the quality of life and the quality of care in reducing costs going forward, all those things should work in making the future of this program work. If Congress doesn't act, what do you think will happen to the individual market? Well, there are things that have to be enacted in the budget to continue to stabilize it. And if those things don't happen, like insurance, reinsurance or cost sharing reductions, it will fall apart because people won't be able to afford to buy the product we have. I know that Aetna has significantly reduced its exposure to the individual markets, the individual exchanges. Um, again, what would have to change for you all to come back into the exchanges? A stable, predictable market. That's what insurance and risk is all about. If you can predict it, and it's not assured, but if you can predict it and the rules stay the same for more than a year, um, then you can make it work. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty simple formula in underwriting risk going forward. We just need to know what the rules are and they need to be, you know, they need to be solid and continuing and sustainable. And are you hopeful that, that um, Congress will be able to figure this out, that they'll come to a solution on health care? Well, so far they haven't. Um, I am an eternal optimist, and I have great hope that a bipartisan solution will emerge. I know there are people on both sides of the aisle, um, and a lot of the leadership in both parties that want to get beyond this part of it and move into um, what could be a bipartisan solution and a fix that would be good for all Americans. Mark Bertolini, CEO of Aetna, thanks for coming by. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Yahoo Finance's podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.